We'll turn now to our scripture reading. We're going to be reading 1 Kings chapter 2 as we continue in God's history of his people. Last week we saw Solomon placed on his throne, and this week we see Solomon's throne become secure. So 1 Kings chapter 2, before we read, let's pray together. We recall, Father, when your son spoke to Lazarus in the grave, that Lazarus come out and he was alive. That your word is the life-giving word. And so we pray that you would speak life to us and cause us to live and breathe in our hearts and our souls as well as our bodies here by the power of your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Kings chapter 2. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I am about to go the way of all the earth, he said, so be strong, show yourself a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements as written in the law of Moses, so you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. Now you yourself know what Joab, son of Zeruiah, did to me, what he did to the two commanders of Israel's army, Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jether. He killed them, shedding their blood in peacetime as if in battle, and with that blood stained the belt around his waist and the sandals on his feet. Deal with him according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to the grave in peace. But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai of Gilead, and let them be among those who eat at your table. They stood by me when I fled from your brother Absalom. And remember, you have with you Shimei, son of Gera, the Benjamite, from Bahurim, who called down bitter curses on me the day I went to Mahanaim. When he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death by the sword. But now do not consider him innocent. You are a man of wisdom. You will know what to do to him. Bring his gray head down to the grave in blood. Then David rested with his father as was buried in the city of David. He had reigned 40 years over Israel, 7 years in Hebron, and 33 in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his rule was firmly established. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, went to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother. Bathsheba asked him, do you come peacefully? He answered, yes, peacefully. Then he added, I have something to say to you. You may say it, she replied. As you know, he said, the kingdom was mine. All Israel looked to me as their king, but things changed, and the kingdom has gone to my brother, for it has come to him from the Lord. Now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. You may make it, she said. So he continued, please ask King Solomon. He will not refuse you to give me Abishag the Shunammite as my wife. Very well, Bathsheba replied. I will speak to the king for you. When Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah, the king stood up to meet her, bowed down to her, and sat down on his throne. He had a throne brought for the king's mother, and she sat down at his right hand. I have one small request to make of you, she said. Do not refuse me. The king replied, Make it, my mother. I will not refuse you. So she said, let Abishag the Shunammite be given in marriage to your brother Adonijah. King Solomon answered his mother, why do you request Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? You might as well request the kingdom for him. After all, he is my older brother. Yes, for him and for Abiathar the priest and Joab the son of Zeruiah. 
Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if Adonijah does not pay with his life for this request. And now as surely as the Lord lives, he who established me securely on the throne of my father David and has founded a dynasty for me as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon gave orders to Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, and he struck down Adonijah, and he died. To Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go back to your fields in Anathoth. You deserve to die, but I will not put you to death now, because you carried the ark of the sovereign Lord before my father David and shared all my father's hardships. So Solomon removed Abiathar from the priesthood of the Lord, fulfilling the word of the Lord had spoken at Shiloh about the house of Eli. When the news reached Joab, who had conspired with Adonijah, though not with Absalom. He fled to the tent of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar. King Solomon was told that Joab had fled to the tent of the Lord and was beside the altar. Then Solomon ordered Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, to go strike him down. So Benaiah entered the tent of the Lord and said to Joab, The king says, Come out. But he answered, No, I will die here. Benaiah reported to the king, This is how Joab answered me. Then the king commanded Benaiah, do as he says, strike him down and bury him, and so clear me and my father's house of the guilt of the innocent blood that Joab shed. The Lord will repay him for the blood he shed, because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked two men and killed them with the sword, both of them Abner, son of Ner, commander of Israel's army, and Amasa, son of Jether, commander of Judah's army, were better men and more upright than he. May the guilt of their blood rest on the head of Joab and his descendants forever. But on David and his descendants, his house and his throne, may there be the Lord's peace forever. So Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, went up and struck down Joab and killed him, and he was buried on his own land in the desert. The king put Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, over the army in Joab's position and replaced Abiathar with Zadok the priest. Then the king sent for Shimei and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and live there, but do not go anywhere else. The day you leave and cross the Kidron Valley, you can be sure you will die. Your blood will be on your own head. Shimei answered the king, What you say is good. Your servant will do as my lord the king has said. And Shimei stayed in Jerusalem for a long time. But three years later, two of Shimei's slaves ran off to Achish, son of Maacah, king of Gath. And Shimei was told, Your slaves are in Gath. At this he saddled his donkey and went to Achish at Gath in search of his slaves. So Shimei went away and brought the slaves back from Gath. When Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had returned, the king summoned Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and warn you? On the day you leave to go anywhere else, you can be sure you will die. At that time you said to me, What you say is good, I will obey. Why then did you not keep your oath to the Lord and obey the command I gave you? The king also said to Shimei, You know in your heart all the wrong you did to my father David. Now the Lord will repay you for your wrongdoing. But King Solomon will be blessed, and David's throne will remain secure before the Lord forever. Then the king gave the order to Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck Shimei down and killed him. The kingdom was now firmly established in Solomon's hands. Now sometimes you want a fresh start. After a particularly bad day, you think, I just need to go to bed, go to sleep, wake up tomorrow, and start all over again. Or I've known students who've gone to school, they've gone off to college, whatever, in their first year, they really struggle, they're getting bad grades, they don't have any motivation, they have no purpose, they need to take a break, 
take a year off, figure out what's going on in life, go back with renewed purpose and renewed vision and renewed passion. Sometimes you need that in your job. You, your passion for your current job grows dim. Your, your purpose, your desire, your ambition, it all grows a little bit cold. You need to find something new. You need to start over with renewed energy and vigor. You need to be rid of the challenges of yesterday and start facing some new challenges today. Sometimes churches need a fresh start, new vision, new passion, new mission. Sometimes kingdoms need new start, new leadership. Again, new mission, new vision, new passion. You need to clear out the old challenges and address some new ones to move forward. Such was the case in Israel in the time when David was on his final breaths and Solomon was about to become king on his own. You'll recall that Solomon was made king while David was still king. It doesn't mean that David ceased to be the king. And they have what's called a co-regency. So during the last days of David's reign and the first days of Solomon's reign, they were both king. This is a very common practice in Egypt, and it seems to have been the practice of many of the kings in Israel and in Judah throughout the time of their history. So they reigned together for a time, but now the time has come when David is going to die, and Solomon is going to be king by himself. And David wants Solomon to have a fresh start. He wants him to have a secure throne. And so he gives him a charge. And the charge is broken down into two parts. The first part comes to us in verses 2 to 4. David says, I am about to go the way of all the earth. So be strong, show yourself a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements as written in the law of Moses so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go, and the Lord may keep his promise to me. David's desire is that his dynasty and his throne will be secure. And so David gives Solomon two different instructions for this security, for two different kinds of security. He gives Solomon instructions for immediate security, and he gives Solomon instructions for ultimate security. And he begins here in these verses with the ultimate security. David remembers what God had promised him. He remembers that God had promised him a kingdom which would never end, and a throne upon which one of his sons would sit forever. And he also remembered that that throne would be established by the obedience of his sons. That it was, in some sense, a conditionally unconditional covenant. So David instructs Solomon in a few things to help him to keep this covenant which God had made with him. The first thing he says is, be strong, show yourself a man. Being king is not for wimps. You have to have courage, you have to have conviction, you have to have decisiveness and diligence. And so David says, have all these things. But then he goes on and says, observe what the Lord requires. Keep his commands, his decrees, his requirements, all as stated in the law of Moses. He's looking back again to Deuteronomy. And he recognizes something that's very important. That even though David's promise is unconditional. His kingdom will endure forever, yet there is a conditional element to it. When his sons sin, they will be punished. And so if the kingdom is going to endure, it needs to have an enduringly obedient king on his throne. 
And so David says to Solomon, keep God's commands, that God may keep his promise to me. But Solomon won't keep those commands. He's going to fail. But David's greater, greatest son, Jesus, will keep David's charge and God's commands to a degree which David would not have dared to imagine. But David recognizes something. He recognizes that the security of God's people depends on the obedience of their king. The security of God's people depends on the obedience of their king. So where is our security? For many of us, perhaps even for most of us, our security is in money. If I can save enough, if I can make enough, if I can have just the right job, if I can pay low enough taxes, if I can have the good enough career, then I will be secure. What does Jesus say? He says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus is not opposed to wealth or possessions. His own ministry was supported by very wealthy women who helped him and supported him and his disciples along the course of his earthly ministry. But he is steadfastly opposed to looking to money and to wealth for security. Some of us might find our security in national security, or in nations, or in citizenship, that if our army is big enough, or if our air force is swift enough, if our arsenals are full enough, if our borders are secure enough, then I will feel secure. Remember what Jesus says when he answers Pilate. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. He's not opposed to nations or borders or armies. But he is opposed to looking for our security to nations or borders or armies. Some of us look to security to what others will think of us. If only I was beautiful enough. If only I was slender enough. If only I was athletic enough or smart enough or desirable enough or successful enough or respected enough, if only other people thought highly enough of me, then I would feel secure. But Jesus says this again, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Jesus is not saying we should have a disregard for how other people view us. This is the same King Jesus who said that you are a city on a hill. Let your good works shine that others may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. But he is saying that if you look to others, think of you for security. Your security is in the wrong place. So where should we look for security? We should look to obedience. We should look to one kind of obedience immediately and one kind of obedience Ultimately, we should look to our own obedience. Some of you who are very reformed are cringing, but we should look to our own obedience and we should look to the obedience of Christ. Remember what Jesus says again, King Jesus, Matthew 7, everyone then who hears these words of mine, this is after the Sermon on the Mount, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them 
will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. We're not saved by our works, but that by no means means that works don't matter. They don't have a place, and we shouldn't find confidence in them. Remember that after Paul's great teaching in Ephesians, in Ephesians 2, as for you, you were dead in your sins, and in Christ you have been made alive, and it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. At the end of all of that, Paul gets to the punchline, and he says in verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Or we can forget James, always witty, very short James. Faith without works is dead. We need to be obedient to God, that there is security in recognizing that God has shown grace to me and I respond to God's grace. It's a sign of being made alive. But if we look to our obedience for ultimate security, we will quiver in fear all the days of our life because we are not ultimately obedient. For that, we need to trust in God, God who is our King. Psalm 20, verse 7 says of the faithful, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The security of the people of God is found in the obedience to God of their king. Christ is our king, and he is perfectly obedient. Therefore, Christ's people who are citizens in his kingdom are perfectly secure. If we look anywhere else for security, we will not find what we are looking for. Only when we have cast ourselves entirely on Christ will we find anything resembling the kind of security we most desperately need. So David tells Samuel to take care of the ultimate security of the kingdom, but then he gives him instructions for taking care of the temporary security of his kingdom. And we see that that charge is given in verses 5 to 9. That Solomon needs a fresh start. Solomon needs a fresh start. He needs to be done with the problems and the backstabbers of the past so that he can focus on new challenges and build this kingdom and enlarge this kingdom here in the now. Now David knows a thing or two about enemies and backstabbers. He knows about survival, and he knows about how to bring a kingdom together. He's the one who fought Philistines and slew the giant Goliath. He's the one who escaped Saul all those number of times. He's the one who united the kingdom against fierce opposition and who survived attempt after attempt after attempt to rip the kingdom out of his hand. David dies at the relatively young age of 70-ish. But when you think about that, it's amazing he lived that long. If I went through the stress and strain that David went through, I would die at 50. But David says to Solomon, I want you to be done with all of these past challenges. I want you to have a fresh start. So David gives Solomon sort of a hit list. He speaks of Joab, then he has a break and speaks fondly of the sons of Barzillai, and then he comes back and he speaks of Shimei. Some have said, some scholars have said, this is David's last final disgusting act. And he's murderous 
He wants to clear the decks for Solomon and does it in a, a wretched way. I don't really think that's the case. I, in fact, think that David and Solomon act wisely and justly in respect to all of these matters. And to understand that, we need to look at the various characters involved here. The first one is Joab. Joab is a, a shrewd scumbag. He was very helpful to David. He helped David out in a number of pinches. He was a good general, but he proved himself to be too volatile and too violent to be trusted. Not only had Joab only, if we can say that, but not only had Joab murdered two different men who were innocent in a time of peace, as if it was a time of war, but Joab had sided with Adonijah when Adonijah had rebelled against David and Solomon. And so David knows that Joab is a threat and that he is not to be trusted, and so he commands Solomon to put Joab to death. And this is just and right. Look back at Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 19, says this, If anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. So that it may be well with you. David wants it to be well with Solomon and with Israel. And so he says, Joab is a murderer. Why David didn't deal with him himself is a different question. But Joab is a murderer. He must be put to death if the kingdom is not going to have the blood of Abner and Amasa on its hands. So then second, there's the sons of Barzillai. They were kind to David. When David had to flee Jerusalem, they were gracious to him. They cared for him. And David says to Solomon, let them eat at your table. That's like saying, give them a federal pension. This is security. This is kindness. This is saying, you have been good to the state. Now the state will be good to you. And King Jesus is good to those who are kind to him as well. He says in Matthew 10, And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. But third, we come to Shimei. He was a supporter of Saul, and he was a hater of David. Shimei is a Benjamite, and Saul was a Benjamite. And David takes the kingdom away from the Benjamites and puts it in the hand of Judah where it belongs, according to the blessings given by Jacob. But Shimei harbored this grudge. And so when Absalom drives David out of the city of David, Shimei begins throwing rocks at David and his companions and cursing them. And then, of course, when David is king again, he's very, very, very sorry, and David has mercy upon him. But David knows that he's still a threat, that he harbors anger and hatred towards the house of David and would love nothing more than to see somebody from the house of Benjamin come back to the throne. And so he instructs that Shimei be put to death. And after these instructions, David dies. And Solomon is king. Solomon immediately begins to set out to put these last instructions of his father into place, but first there's a twist in the plot. Because Adonijah reappears. You would think that Adonijah would be content with having his life spared after he would have put his own brother to death, given the chance. But he's not content. Instead, he makes one more attempt at the throne. He comes to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, and he says to her, I just have one request. 
you know, I was king. And your son, now he's king. And that's okay, but, but I would really, really, really like it if Abishag the Shunammite, that most beautiful of my father's concubines who cared for my father in his old age, I would really love it if I could have her as my wife. I just, just this one thing, please. So Bathsheba takes the bait. She goes into Solomon and she says, I just have one thing, don't refuse me. He says, I won't refuse. And then she says, will you please give Abishag to Adonijah? And Solomon sees right through it. And he recognizes that this is Adonijah's plot to have the kingdom once more for himself. And he orders that Adonijah be put to death. Now there's an echo of chapter 1 here. If you look careful, you'll recognize, and remember that in chapter 1, Nathan the prophet comes to Bathsheba with a request. Bathsheba goes to the king with that same request. The king responds to that request and tears Adonijah down from the throne. You come here into chapter 2, you have somebody who comes to Bathsheba with a request. Bathsheba brings the request to the king. The king responds to that request by bringing Adonijah down to the grave. Every time someone comes to Bathsheba and goes to the king, Adonijah goes one step lower. Here he goes as low as you can go. He goes into the grave. More on that in just a moment. But now, now Solomon deals with Abiathar the priest. He leaves him be, lets him live, takes away his priesthood, exiles him out into the country estate, and removes him from a position of influence. But then Solomon turns and he has Joab put to death. This is for God's glory. Psalm 79, verse 10 says, Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. We must never profane God's glory with our actions or our lack of action. God can never be said to be unjust. And his people can never reflect injustice. And so if a man murders two people, he must be punished for his action. So Solomon sets out not only to secure his throne, but to secure the good name of God among his people. And finally, Solomon comes to Shimei, this very strange character in the Scripture. Solomon is surprisingly patient with him. He lets him live. He says, as long as you stay in the city of Jerusalem, you will live. As soon as you go outside the city, you will die. Shimei recognizes this is a very gracious agreement, and he agrees to the terms. But then he breaks them three years later. He goes off out of the city chasing these slaves. He comes back. Solomon has him under surveillance. Solomon finds out about it, and he has him put to death. Now, what do we make of this? What do we learn from this? Again, Solomon has been berated by even many modern commentaries, commentators. He's been called vindictive and bloodthirsty and scared, murderous. Again, I think Solomon acts wisely and with justice. Joab was a murderer and a conspirator. Abiathar was a traitor. And then consider the cases of Adonijah and Shimei. In both cases, Solomon made them a deal, right? You go back to Adonijah, the last part of the first chapter, he says to Adonijah, if Adonijah shows himself to be a worthy man, 
not a hair of his head shall fall to the ground. But if evil is found in him, he will die. Solomon had every right to put Adonijah to death right away when he became king. But he doesn't. He gives him a deal. You remain noble and loyal, and you will live. Break those terms, and you will die. Adonijah comes asking for a royal wife. One of the ways that a person could lay claim to a throne would be to marry the wives or the concubines of the former king. So Adonijah thinks to himself, just one last time, I need just one more thing to make my claim to the throne a bit more secure. I already have Joab. I already have Abiathar. Now if I can just have a royal wife, people will certainly see that I, the oldest remaining son, deserve to be king. Solomon sees right through it. And Adonijah is doing exactly what Absalom had done. Absalom had gotten military support. He'd gotten religious support. And then remember when, when Absalom chases David out of Jerusalem, he takes some of David's concubines up to the top of the palace and violates them for the whole city to see. That he might demonstrate that he is the true, rightful, powerful king. Adonijah, who is handsome like Absalom, and rebellious like Absalom, now walks once more in his brother's wretched steps, and he, like Absalom before him, is going to die. Then there's Shimei. Solomon made him a deal too. Stay in the city and live, leave and die. He leaves and he dies. Now who are you in the story? Who are you? You're not Solomon. Solomon was the king. You and I aren't the king. You and I are Adonijah and Shimei. God is our king. We read in Psalm 145, I will exalt you, my God the king. I will praise your name forever and ever. God has made a deal with us as well, hasn't he? He's given us very plain, clear, direct instructions. Don't lie, don't steal, don't covet, don't murder, don't commit adultery. Keep the Sabbath. He says, don't dishonor the name of the Lord. Don't commit adultery. Honor your father and mother. We know the commands. He made the same deal with Adam and Eve. Don't eat the fruit. Don't eat it and you'll live. Eat it and you'll die. Right? God is not confusing in his terms. He's very plain in his terms. But this is a horrifying reality for us. God has made a deal with us. And we've broken the deal. Just as Solomon was right and just to have Adonijah and Shimei killed, God would be right and just to put us to death as well. Isn't that frightening? But he hasn't put us to death, has he? He hasn't given us the just punishment for our sin, has he? Instead, he took the just punishment for our sin and he placed it on his king. As the prophet Isaiah says, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Did he have to? No. Is God ever required to give mercy? No. Is grace ever deserved? No. He didn't have to. He chose to. He chose to take those who were his enemies, and make them his sons and daughters. He chose to take rebels and make them heirs to his kingdom. He chose to take those who were as good as dead and give them eternal life. 
God is gracious, isn't he? But don't mistake God's grace for being soft. God still expects obedience, and he still demands loyalty, and he will not tolerate further or final rebellion. We read that from the author of Hebrews. It says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened to have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. In the end, God and Christ as Solomon before, we eliminate all his enemies and remove all threats to his kingdom. Jesus says exactly that, Matthew 13. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus, too, will deal with his enemies. And we see that comes to final consummation in Revelation 21. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. God will destroy his enemies as well. Does that make you fear God? Well, good. Scripture says our God is a consuming fire. He is to be feared. He is not to be trifled with. He is to be obeyed. But he is also merciful. And he says to all those who will come to Christ, his king, and will bow the knee in submission and raise their hands to him in worship, that they will live. Because his king has been crucified in their place. And so God calls us, his enemies, to come to his king, his son, and to become in the process his people, his sons and daughters, his heirs, co-heirs together with Christ. One day it will be too late. One day there will be no time to bow any knees, no time to confess Christ is king, Only then will be the time for destruction. But God mercifully has not made that time yet. There is still time. There is still time to come to Christ, to hail him as king, to bend the knee, and to praise him. And for those who will, the great day of God's vengeance and destruction will be a great day glory, because Christ is our King. Let's pray. Father, we look at Solomon and at David, 
and we see justice. And we see wisdom even. Then we look at ourselves. We recognize that we don't want justice for ourselves. We want mercy. And we want mercy again and again and again. And we praise you because you give us mercy and you give it again and again and again. And on the last day, when the wheat and the weeds are divided, when the cowardly and the faithless are dealt with on one side and the righteous are dealt with on the other, you will have mercy on us. Though we belong with the cowardly and the detestable, yet you count us among the righteous, but only because you have counted Christ among the sinners. So we come even today to the crucified one to find life and life eternal. That we who were dead in sins have been made alive together with Christ. It is by grace we have been saved. And we pray that as those saved by grace, that we might be obedient, loving you and serving you, being faithful to all your commands. And when we fail, asking for forgiveness, being forgiven, getting up and starting over with a fresh start that we so desperately need. God, your mercies are new each morning. You've given us new life and a fresh start. You've given us a kingdom that endures forever. We praise you in the name of the great king of that kingdom, King Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.